All right, go ahead and uh, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13 this morning. That is Mark 13, 9 through 13. We are continuing, uh, obviously, are continuing our study of Mark's Gospel. And this morning, we find ourselves once again in the Olivet Discourse. We'll be here for probably another four or five weeks. Um, but our text today is a, is a really somber one. Uh, it has to do with persecution. In these verses, our Lord Jesus will prophesy concerning the persecution that was to come upon the infant church in the first century prior to the destruction of the temple. Um, he, he speaks of arrests, courts, beatings in synagogues, betrayals, hatred, and martyrdom that will come upon his people. But he also speaks of preaching, faithfulness through suffering, the spread of the gospel, and a promise of salvation for the newborn church. Now, while I wholeheartedly believe, as you know by now, while I wholeheartedly believe that this text finds its fulfillment in the first century, I also believe that it speaks to us today, uh, nearly 2,000 years later. Now, we, we live in a time when biblical Christianity has become wildly unpopular with the majority of society. Even those who claim to be conservative and would align themselves with some of our beliefs as Christians, are nonetheless Christless conservatives. Right, consider for a moment, some of you have seen this, uh, for a moment that Fox News, right, a network that is often considered a conservative news network, is celebrating Gay Pride Month. She knows what I'm talking about. Right, so, so these are Christless conservatives, and so when the chips are down, we are often unpopular with them too, aren't we? They may agree with us on some biblical principles, but when the chips are down, they agree with us on very few things. And the things that they might agree with us on, um, they, they agree with us for non-biblical reasons. Right? We just so happen to line up, we, and, 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 and the list is getting shorter every year. What I'm getting at, brothers and sisters, is that at root, we have no real allies outside of the church. We don't. As I've said many times before, there are many cultural winds blowing, ideologies solidifying, and legislation that is probably coming that spells trouble for us in the near future if we are going to be faithful to the Lord Jesus. And so, a text that speaks of persecution, preaching, and the promise of salvation to those who endure is quite relevant for us. And we would all be very wise to listen. So then... My aim in this sermon is twofold. First, I want to vindicate the words of our Lord Jesus and show you how this text found its fulfillment in the first century. And second, my aim overall is to encourage us all as Christians to be faithful to Christ no matter what comes, no matter what threats or hardships may come upon us. And I plan to do that this morning by dividing our text into three main headings and then giving application at the end. We will be considering the persecution, the preaching, and the promise. I never do alliteration, but there you go. <laughs> the persecution, the preaching, and the promise. And may God bless us this morning as we turn to his word. So with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 13, verses 9 through 13. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Holy God, we come before you this morning looking for grace to help us in our time of need. We need to understand your word, but we are dull and so often cold of heart. And so we ask that you, by your spirit, would warm our hearts and sharpen our minds so that we would receive your word with soberness, reverence, and implicit faith in what you have said. 
Help us to see this morning that Jesus Christ is better, that he is greater, and that he promises us better things than this world has to offer. Glorify yourself by working in our hearts, granting faith, and conforming us more and more into the image of your beloved Son. We ask for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, before we dive in, uh, let's take a moment to remember the context, right? I'll probably do this in, in every sermon or almost every sermon. It's incredibly important to remember the context as we walk through the Olivet Discourse. So remember with me for a moment how our Lord, throughout his public ministry, has been harassed by the Jewish religious leaders and rejected by the nation as a whole, right? He has been a very popular teacher and a popular healer, but very few people have come to believe that he is the Messiah and Son of God. By and large, he has been rejected by the nation. More than that, there has been a long-standing attempt by the religious leaders to have Jesus arrested and killed, starting in Mark chapter 3, when he healed a man with a withered hand in the synagogue, and they sought a way to kill him. Right, so this has been going on. And then right before this discourse, our Lord spent the entire day in Mark 11 and 12, he spent the entire day debating with the chief priests, elders, scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees who rejected his claims and were seeking a way to have him arrested. At every turn, our Lord has been rejected by the very ones he came to. As John writes in chapter 1, verse 11 of his gospel, he came to his own, and his own received him not. And so, now as our Lord leaves the temple for the final time, never again to return, he announces a prophecy of judgment on it in verse 2. He says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So here Jesus prophesies the destruction of the temple that would occur in AD 70. Right? No, not one stone was to be left upon another. And this was literally fulfilled if you know your history. There would be great judgment upon Israel. Why? Because they rejected the Savior. There would be horrible destruction, pain, death, and judgment from God because they did not recognize their king when he came to them. So Jesus announces this impending doom on the temple in verse 2. And then in verse 4, his disciples come and ask him a question. It's a two-part question. They say, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? They ask when and what will be the sign? Clearly, they are asking about the destruction of the temple. That's all our Lord has mentioned, and therefore, that is the only possible referent in this context. Jesus says the temple's coming down. They say when and what will be the sign? Right, so the question of the disciples has to do with the prophecy concerning the temple's destruction. And that question is what kicks off the whole Olivet Discourse. The disciples ask when and what will be the sign? And Jesus begins to answer them in verse 5. Lastly, let's remember our time text in verse 30. Our Lord says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This generation, as I showed you a few weeks ago, is used consistently throughout the Gospels to refer to the people then living when Jesus spoke. Right? And so, so again, this generation means exactly what it sounds like. Jesus says, the generation then living will not pass away. And all these things that he says, all these things will take place, refers to the disciples' question in verse 4, doesn't it? They asked for a sign when all these things are about to be accomplished, referring to the temple. And Jesus says, this generation won't pass away until all these things come to, come to pass. So then... Jesus makes it very clear that everything he says in verses 5 through 30 was to be fulfilled within that generation. And indeed they were when the temple was destroyed in AD 70. And some of you maybe have big eyes and you're saying, what about a couple of verses there toward the end? We'll get there. We'll get there. So the context tells us how we are to interpret this passage. Again, verses 5 through 30 have to do with the time leading up to and final destruction of the temple. And Jesus says himself, it will all be fulfilled within that generation. So he has set our grid for interpretation and we must abide by it lest we call him a liar. He said this generation, so we have to see how is it fulfilled within that generation. So we're going to be looking to see just how his words came to pass within that generation while also looking to see what application can be made for us nearly 2,000 years later. I always like to give the context there because uh, it, it's, it's incredibly important. 
But let's now begin by looking at our text this morning, and our first heading will be the persecution. Now I'm going to read, I'm taking this kind of topically as I go through. Um, let, let me read now what Jesus says about persecution throughout these five verses, the persecution that was going to come upon the infant church. Verse 9, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you. That's, that's arrest. You'll be arrested. They will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings. Verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over. Verse 12, and brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Verse 13, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Clearly, Jesus is prophesying about a persecution that was going to come upon the church. That is just abundantly clear. All interpreters agree. This is about a persecution. And there are three major aspects to this persecution that Jesus mentions. First, he mentions being delivered over to councils and being beaten in synagogues. What he's doing here is quite clearly, again, if you know history, he's referring to how things were in Israel and the surrounding areas in the first century. The councils there are Jewish courts. Read Acts 4 and 5. The disciples were arrested and taken before the council. That's a Jewish council. So councils refer to Jewish courtrooms. This is the Jewish religious legal system. And there you had the greater, San, or rather the greater Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. It was a 71 people met there, top dogs in religion in Israel. You had the greater Sanhedrin. And then, I learned this this past week, in various other towns you had lesser Sanhedrins, which were court legal bodies made up of 23 um, elders and priests within the, uh, various towns. So these councils are Jewish courts that settled religious disputes and also meted out appropriate punishments for violating various aspects of the Old Testament law. And being beaten in synagogues, tell me that's not a reference to the first century. Uh, being beaten in synagogues is a reference to the punishments handed down from those courts. Uh, if you know your Old Testament well, you know that the Old Testament often required corporal punishment or beating for offenders. And so being beaten in the synagogue refers to Jewish court convictions and the following punishments. And the most famous of these, maybe you've heard of this, is the 39 lashes. Or if you're into the King James Version, the 40 lashes less one. You've got to do a bit of a math problem if you're reading the King James there. The 39 lashes. So again, corporal beatings is what's being referred to, handed down from the Jewish courts. And that's because all, that's all the Jews of that day could do. They couldn't execute. You remember whenever the Jews went, took Jesus before Pilate? And they say, what's this have to do with me? And they say, we don't have the authority to execute. So only Rome did. But they could beat people for breaking law. So Jesus here is speaking of this first aspect of persecution, of how the early church would be heavily persecuted by the Jews. And just to let you know, the Jews persecuted the Christians in the first century harder than the Romans did. But far and away. The early Christians particularly the Jewish Christians, would be arrested and tried in Jewish courts for heresy because they preached what Jesus said. So again, the powerful Jewish society in that day would oppress the church, and they would use the Jewish religion to do so. How ironic. How ironic is this? Claiming to be acting in the name of the living God, they would persecute the people who actually belonged to him. So there's your first aspect. Second aspect of this persecution, Jesus mentions being delivered over by your own family. He said there would be persecutions and hatred from within the family. This is the most unnatural form of persecution, isn't it? Right? The ones who should love and seek to protect are some of the very ones who would do the most damage to the early church, alerting the Jewish authorities to who were the Christians were in town. Yes, my son is one of them. Or later, alerting the Gentile authorities, yes, my family member is one of the ones who follows the way. It's what Christianity was originally called. Imagine that for a moment, your own family. So great was the hatred going to be toward the early church that some of the church members' own family would turn them over. It seems that hatred would be thicker than blood. Hatred would be thicker than blood. And their own families who were not Christian would not pity them. 
The third aspect of this persecution Jesus mentions is standing before kings and governors, being brought to trial and being delivered over to death. This isn't just Jewish persecution. This is legal persecution now. This is persecution within the Roman Empire. Civil courts, right? Uh, Secular courts, if you will. Not only will the early church be persecuted by the Jews, but also by the Gentiles, right? The Roman civil magistrates, kings, judges, and all the rest will hate them and persecute them as well. And the worst part of it is that these ones have the power not just to beat, but to execute, to torture and execute. They have the civil authority to kill the Christians without any fear of reprisal from the government because they are the government. Indeed, as Jesus said in verse 13, you will be hated by all. You will be hated by all. The Jews would persecute them. Their own family members would persecute them. And the Roman civil government would come after them as well. But why? Why? Why would this persecution happen to the church? Well, Jesus tells us in verses 9 and 13. For my sake. For my name's sake. It will be for Jesus' sake that they suffer. You know, the name stands for the whole person. You come in someone's name, right? You come with their authority. Jesus says you'll be persecuted for my name's sake because of me. But how does that work? How will they be persecuted for his sake, right? Like, what's the big deal if these people want to worship and follow Jesus, right? Whatever they do privately and personally, that's up to them, isn't it? I'll tell you. They will be persecuted for Jesus' sake because they will tell people about Jesus. They will tell people. They will, I just want to be clear here, they will open their mouths and declare his authority, his law, his godhood, his coming judgment upon Israel, his coming judgment at the end of the age upon both the living and the dead. Right? They will open their mouths and tell of his salvation. They'll tell of his sinless life, atoning death on a cross, and glorious resurrection on the third day. Hear me, they would be persecuted because of what they would say. Because they would publicly align themselves with Jesus. Because they would preach him. And because many people, frankly, would not want to hear it. But even beyond that, they would be persecuted because of their lives. Because they would not swear ultimate allegiance to anyone but Christ. Let me say that again. It's not that they did not have lesser allegiances, right? Like I have an allegiance to my wife and my family, but my ultimate allegiance is to the Lord Jesus, yes? This is, we know that, this is, that, that that's what they did. Yes, we can have lesser allegiances, but our primary unyielding allegiance is to Christ because they would not break his law to please men they would be persecuted because they would not break his law to please the Jews or their families or even Caesar. They would be devoted to Christ in both word and deed and they would do so publicly. And that, brothers and sisters, is why they would be persecuted. Hear me a quick aside here. You rarely get in trouble for silently believing something. Very rarely. I would say never. You will never get in trouble for silently believing something. You won't get in trouble for believing something that nobody knows that you believe. (laughs) And simply, that's because nobody knows what you believe if you're silent. But these Christians would not be secret Christians. Ever heard that? I'm just saying, it's my private life. That was an abomination to the early church. There's no such thing as a secret Christian. Why? Because Jesus is not a secret king. His lordship is not private. His law is not just for the church. And so they would not, they would not and could not keep it a secret that they belonged to him. The church would be persecuted for what they preached. They would preach to individuals that Jesus is the Messiah, that the Jews rejected him, that the pagan religions they were entrapped in were worthless and full of false gods. They would preach that there is no other way, no other truth, and no other life other than Jesus Christ. They would preach that there is no way to be saved from the wrath of God for your sins apart from faith in Christ. Hear me. They preached the gospel to men. They preached 
the sinfulness of man, the holiness of God, the necessity of divine justice against sinners, the reality of eternal wrath, the reality of a coming day of judgment and reckoning with the God that you have offended by your sin. They preached the necessity of a sinless human substitute to bear the weight and wrath of Almighty God in place of sinners. They preached the necessity of a perfect righteousness before God. They preached the necessity of a redeemer, a savior. And they preached that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled it all for those who believe upon him. And likewise, they preached the impending damnation upon those who did not believe in Christ. They were going to preach the gospel to men. And they would preach not just to individuals, but hear me, also to the government. Also to the government. Oh, that God would help us to see this in the scriptures. You think they got in trouble for just saying what they thought privately in private conversations? No. Most of the, the, the culture at that time, you could have whatever God you wanted to have. Everyone had lots of different gods. It wasn't just this private belief. Christianity is inherently political. Please hear me, don't fall into this this foolishness, this, this pietism that says religion is private. And, the, and I'm not saying that there are not two kingdoms, right? There's, there's the church and the world, yes, but there is overlap between the two. Why? Because Jesus Christ is Lord over both. Don't fall into this foolishness of, of pietism that says your religion needs to say your religion and the church is just the church and you let the secular government do and say whatever they want. That's nonsense and that's not how the early church did things. We declare the universal rule of a king who is God himself. And the early church declared this. They would declare that there was a king above all kings, a lord above all lords, and a god above all other gods. And when I say gods there, I mean it's a Jewish metaphor. Read the, read the Psalms. It's a Jewish metaphor for those in power. There's a king of all kings, a lord of all lords, a god above all gods. And these Christians would preach that all men are accountable to the king that they proclaimed. And his name is Jesus. They declared in the face of Caesar, Caesar, you are not a God, but Jesus is the living God with whom you must reckon. They preached to the government. Hear me. They declared the authority of God over all men, including those in civil authority. They declared that there was a different king other than Caesar. And that's what got them in trouble. Their mouths would be what got them into trouble. Do you see that? Their mouths. They were loudmouthed Christians. That's the best kind. <laughs> they opened it. They opened their mouths to declare the truth of Christ, and they refused to be silent in the face of a world that hated them. They would not whisper about the kingship, authority, and gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, but they proclaimed it to all. They preached, and they had an unyielding allegiance to Christ. So it was their devotion to Christ and their evangelism to both the small and the great that would be what got them persecuted, and indeed it did. This all clearly happened prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Honestly, I read this in a commentary, and it made me giggle because it's true. These verses here in, in our passage here in Mark sound like an overview of the book of Acts. That's exactly what this sounds like. And it's... Sorry, it's an overview of the book of Acts specifically and really a general concept that is woven throughout the entirety of the New Testament. Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you. After talking to some people last, last week, I don't want to give you too many examples because time will not permit me to do so. I found 30 examples of this without really trying uh, in, in Acts, the New Testament letters, and Revelation. So I'll simply give a handful of examples to prove the point that this was fulfilled within the first century. And they don't really need much comment because the text says what it says. With regard to the fulfillment of Jewish persecution, Acts chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, we read this. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So the Jewish rulers arrest them. And then in verse 40 of the same chapter we read, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The Jewish leadership persecuted the church. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, 
we read, And Saul approved of his execution, that is Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So Saul, a, a Jew, was given authority to arrest Christians. Acts chapter 8.3 says that Saul went to house to house, dragging the Christians off to prison. So Saul was given authority to arrest Christians and persecute them, and a great persecution arose in Judea and Samaria. And listen, I'm sure Saul wasn't the only one. Further, after his conversion, Paul, right, Saul, who became Paul, is giving his testimony about his former life in Judaism and says this in Acts chapter 22, verse 19. And I said, Lord, they, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. Paul did this. He beat Christians in the synagogues, like Jesus said. And I'm sure he wasn't the only one. So clearly, our Lord's words happened as he said. But with regard to the gospel being declared before those in civil power, right, in a more general persecution, we read this, Acts chapter 23, verse 24. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So here's Paul imprisoned for Christ, standing before Felix the governor. He will stand before governors. We read also Acts 25, 11, where the apostle Paul says, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death, but if there is nothing to their charges against me, there's legal persecution, their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Paul would stand before not just kings, and governors, but Caesar. Lastly, we read Acts 26, verse 1. So Agrippa, King Agrippa, said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense, standing before a king. He preached the gospel. These things all happened just as Jesus said. And I know I was highlighting the apostle Paul's life, but I think it stands to reason he wasn't the only one that stood before kings and governors. And again, there are many examples of the church at large being persecuted by the Jews. Um, so, so you get what I'm saying. These things all happened in the generation then living. Great persecution came upon the church. Brothers and sisters, this is our heritage. These are the fathers of the faith. This is our family tradition. Faithfulness to Christ that leads to persecution from the godless and an unwavering allegiance to Christ even when the persecution comes. But nevertheless, the preaching must continue. And that brings us to our next heading. The preaching. Consider the following verses. Verse 9, And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Verse 10, And the gospel must first be proclaimed. To all nations. Verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Though the persecution would come, the preaching, the witnessing, the testimony of the church to Jesus Christ must continue. Now, let me take a moment here and address verse 10 before we go any further. Um, and I, and I, I want to do that because at this point, many people will say verse 10 cannot have been fulfilled within the first century. Jesus says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And some of you are going, riddle me that one, Pastor Dave. You say verses 5 through 30 have been fulfilled already. Bear with me. Let me explain this verse now. First, we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture, don't we? That's the first rule of Bible interpretation. You let clearer portions of Scripture interpret more difficult or murkier portions of scripture. So our question is this, does the Bible say that the gospel was preached to all nations within that generation? Because maybe the Bible means something different than what we mean by all nations in our day. Maybe the Bible means something different. So does the Bible say that the gospel was preached to all nations in the first century? And the answer is a resounding yes. Let me show you a few texts that say so, and these are not all the texts. So there's two that I left out. Romans chapter 1, verse 8 says, 
This is the Apostle Paul. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So Paul says that the faith of the Roman Christians has been proclaimed in all the world and their faith is in Christ. It is the Christian faith that has been proclaimed in all the world. Romans 10.18 reads, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Referring to the Jews here, Paul says, have they had the gospel preached to them? And he says, yes, indeed, but not only them, but the voice of gospel ministers has, has gone out to the ends of the world. A third text, Colossians 1, verses 5 and 6, says this, Of this which you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. So here Paul says that the gospel that the Colossians believed is in the whole world and is bearing fruit. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23 says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Again, Paul says that the gospel had been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So the Bible says that the gospel was proclaimed to the whole world, to the nations, to everyone under heaven in the first century. Now, what, what does it mean then? I'll tell you. When the Bible uses that phrase, it does not mean what we think of. We think of all nations and all people, all creation under heaven. We think of literally every single nation, literally every single individual. That's not what it means. It means the whole known world of that day, the nations outside of Israel. In Matthew's parallel account, this isn't in my notes, so bear with me. In Matthew's parallel account, I think he uses the word, I think it's pronounced oikumene, which means the inhabitable world. It's the same word. Uh, that's used in Luke 2, the Christmas passage, that said Caesar Augustus declared that all the world should be taxed, that the oikumene would be taxed, that is the inhabitable world, the Roman Empire. So that's what Matthew's language here is for what Mark says about the nations. So it's the inhabitable world, the known world of that day, or this, the nations outside of Israel. The gospel was to go beyond Israel to the Gentile world before the temple came down. That's what Jesus meant when he used this phrase. And we know that because that's how the inspired apostle understood this phrase when he used similar letters. Right? The gospel had not made it to our side of the world yet, but nevertheless, Paul could say, it's went out to the whole world. What does he mean? The whole known world. The nations. The Gentile nations. That's how the phrase was often used back then. And so, if we're going to be good Bible interpreters and not call Paul and Jesus liars, we need to understand the phrase the same way that they did in their historical context. And indeed, the gospel did go out to all the nations. It went out to all the known world of that day. It went out to the entire Roman Empire. So there's, I know we just got a little bit luxury there, so let, let's, let's come back. Catch this, though. This is still relevant. Catch this. Jesus implies here that the persecution of the church would result in the gospel moving out further and further to the world, doesn't he? This persecution is going to come, but the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Nothing is going to stop or slow it down. It is the message and mission of God himself. The gospel is. It is the message and mission of God. It is the gospel of God, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as such, God will ensure the success and spread of the church's preaching even in the face of persecution. The gospel will indeed be proclaimed to all the nations in that generation. And there's beauty in this that we need to see. Please hear me. Jesus is saying that the church will be established among the nations before the temple falls. Let's put this in theological language here. The new temple will be established. A new temple, the church, made up of both Jew and Gentile, will be established before the old one is destroyed. You say, what do you mean the church is the temple? Remember 1 Peter 2.5, the temple of holy stones? We are the holy stones built up into this temple. Ephesians 2.20 and 21, it talks about a holy house being built for God, that is the church, that we are the new temple. The church was to be established among the nations before the old temple came down. 
Clearly, God's people are meant to be the world and not only the Jews. And that's good news for the world, isn't it? After all, you know John 3.16, Jesus came to save the world, not just the Jews. More than that, Jesus is hinting at the fact that the church will be greater than Israel ever thought about being. The church will be bigger. The church will be international, made up of all the ethnos, all the ethnicities, all the nations, every tribe, tongue. Right? You know that passage in Revelation. The church will be bigger. The church will be purer. And hear me, the gospel that was rejected by Israel will be embraced by the nations. Is there not glory there? It will be proclaimed in all the nations. Israel rejected it, but it will be proclaimed. Hear me on this. God gets the last word, doesn't he? God gets the last word. The Jews might have rejected the gospel, but God still has a people. God will grow his church, and it will be a beautiful place of worship. It will be a glorious, holy temple. He gets the last word, not unbelieving, wicked men like the Jews of that day. But lest I be accused of anti-Semitism, let's remember Romans 11. The Jews will one day be brought into the church. The Apostle Paul says there is one olive tree. The branches of the Jews have been broken off for their unbelief, and the Gentiles, a wild olive tree, has been grafted in. How much more then will God graft the natural branches back onto the tree? Through faith in Christ. There will be a time when the Jews join the church prior to the second coming of Christ. And when that time comes, the Apostle Paul says, it will be like life from the dead for the world. Bear with me as I get a little bit post-millennial for a second. Paul says revivals will occur. If you thought that gospel going out to the Gentiles was great for the world, wait till the Jews come into the church and then see what happens in the world. He says a period of great church growth will begin. And all of this will happen prior to the second coming of Christ. So the Jews, though they reject Christ now, will one day believe. God has said so in Romans 11. His plan is to save the world, both Jew and Gentile, and he will do it. He will do it. He will. Another thing I want you to see here in these verses. Note the divine necessity in verse 10. The gospel must first be proclaimed. God was going to ensure it would be preached. There is a divine must here. Again, if God is sovereign and something must happen, then that means God has said it must happen and he will do it. God was going to be with the disciples as they preached in the midst of a world that hated them and God himself would ensure the success of the work. God would grant strength and endurance to his people to preach under persecution. Hear me, God will do it. It's part of his plan. And no mere men can shorten the arm of God Almighty. He will certainly accomplish all his holy purpose. And he did. But I don't want you to miss this. It is through their persecution that the preaching would continue. This isn't happy, but this is what the text, I think, is telling us. Through their persecution, the preaching would continue. And their persecution would actually serve to advance the preaching. The end of verse 9 says that they would preach before kings and governors. How did they get before kings and governors? You have to be arrested first. That's how you get there. And they would bear witness to Christ before them. Brothers and sisters, contrary to the schemes of the devil and his people, the persecution of God's people would actually serve to further the gospel. Consider, this, this hit me in my, in my personal reading. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 1, verses 12 through 14. He's writing to the church in Philippi. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, he's in prison, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He said, they arrested me, but this has actually served to advance the preaching of the gospel why? Because the people here who hadn't heard the gospel in my imprisonment are now hearing it. Brothers and sisters, the gospel cannot be stopped. Paul had to have been the most frustrating man in the world. I'm stealing this from a preacher. He said, we're going to put you in prison. Fine, I'll preach there. We're going to let you out. I'll preach there too. We're going to let you live, to live as Christ. We're going to kill you, to die as gain. 
Paul had to have been so frustrating because the gospel can't be stopped. It can't be. The wicked cannot stop it. The devil himself cannot stop it. Why? Because the living God stands behind it. And he is stronger than all. And you know the church's suffering for Christ was in itself a kind of preaching, wasn't it? They were declaring through their suffering for him that he was worthy. That he is better. That he is greater than whatever they suffered. And how did they declare it? By refusing to abandon him. That's powerful. To say, I want him more than I want whatever you're going to take from me. I want him more than I want my stuff. I want him more than I want even my children. If you take them from me, I want him more than I want my life. That's powerful preaching. But they were also to continue to open their mouths and preach, even as they got in trouble and suffered for Christ. Look at the promise in verse 11. I like this. Jesus says that God would help them by his spirit to speak as they should. And so they don't need to be anxious when they stand trial for Christ. Now that's not saying, that's not saying that they didn't need to study the word of God or anything like that. It's not telling you that you can be lazy, uh, but rather when you are, when the pressure is on, don't be afraid. God would guide their tongues by his spirit. Now what exactly does that mean? Again, for our purposes this morning, it means that God would ensure that the preaching would continue. And so the disciples need not worry what they're going to say in that moment. By his spirit, Christ will help his suffering church to keep preaching. I want you to catch one more thing while we're still under this heading of preaching. Even though the suffering and persecution would continue, please hear me, this is going to be one of our application points in a little while. Even though the suffering and persecution would come, the church was to remain on mission. They were to have a laser focus on preaching the gospel. Jesus had given a promise of help and he had given a promise of success. And by faith, they were to be resolved to preach as he had commanded. Hear me, nothing was to be allowed to pull them away from their God-ordained mission of preaching Christ to the world. No suffering was to pull them away from it. No persecution was to hinder them from it. And it would be through this persecution that they would have the opportunity to preach. As the parallel text in Luke 21, 13 says, this blew me away. Jesus, speaking of being persecuted, says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. They were to take the opportunity given and they were to be resolved to not be swayed from their task. Now, maybe you're thinking, as I did, wouldn't that get them into more trouble? If they're being arrested and standing trial and all the rest, and yet they continue to preach, wouldn't that make things worse for them? Yes. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. And that's why Jesus ends this section with a promise in verse 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. They will be hated by all for Christ's sake. All the unbelieving will hate them. And they need to know that beforehand. Look at verse 9. But be on your guard. Jesus wants them to be on their guard. Know this beforehand. You will be hated by all for my sake. The godless will always hate the righteous if the righteous are openly living for Christ and opening their mouths to declare him and his gospel. Mark that down. It will always be this way. Hear me. Even if you're post-mill like me and are optimistic about the future of the world, you need to know that the unconverted will always hate the believing to one degree or another. It's just a question of how much power they have to persecute you. But the principle stands. Sometimes it will only be the power to hurt your feelings and make fun of you. And other times it will be persecution with the power of the sword. But the wicked will always hate those who belong to Christ. But what does the word of God say? 1 John 3.13 Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. What does Jesus say? John 15.18-21 If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Brothers and sisters, don't be surprised. They hated our Lord, and they will hate us too. Are you greater than your master? No. We can expect to be treated the same. But in the midst of all the hatred, persecution, and suffering, Jesus does give a promise to his church. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The end here means death. In the verse right before this, Jesus mentions being put to death. So I think it's reasonable to see in verse 13 a reference to the end of persecution. That is the end of your life. The fullness of persecution. Death for Christ. Martyrdom. Martyrdom. You know, you know martyr, martyr, martus in Greek is the Greek word for Testimony. It's where we get the word martyr from, someone who died for their testimony about Christ. They gave a testimony unto death. And Jesus says that the one who outlasts the persecution, that is the one who sticks with Christ right on through the persecution, the one who is faithful unto death will be saved. And let's, let's be clear. This does not mean saved from death. Rather, it means saved in the ultimate sense. Your soul will be saved. You will lose your life on earth, but in losing your life for Christ and his gospel, you will find it. You will find true life. You will find everlasting life, eternal life with God. Consider again the parallel in Luke chapter 21, verses 17 through 19. Jesus says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Brothers and sisters, in the final analysis, not a hair of your head will be harmed. But how does that work? <laughs> because you'll be saved, body and soul, when all is said and done. Heaven will be yours. And the blessed resurrection of the dead at the last day will be yours. Not a hair will perish from your head. They may kill you, but nothing will actually be taken from you. As Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What a glorious promise. You will be hated and you may die for Christ, but not a hair of your head will perish. You will be saved. The one who is faithful and would rather give his life than part with Christ will be saved. Jesus offers us something better than life on earth, doesn't he? He offers eternal life, and the one who is faithful to the end will get it. The joys of heaven are to be gained. The joys of knowing Christ and seeing him face to face are to be gained. And in light of that, brothers and sisters, all else should be joyfully counted as loss. What is that to me if I get him? What is my life to me if I get him? What is my job to me if I get him? The one who endures to the end will be saved. Consider the martyrs of Revelation 12, 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. The one who loves Christ more than his own life is the one who conquers. By God's grace, they win. This is the promise of Christ to his church. Amen. Now, what does this text say to us now? I'm sure some of you can guess some of the application points, but I just want to spell them out for you. What does this text say to us today? First, expect to be persecuted by those who hate Christ. Expect it. Jesus said, be on your guard. He's given a warning. And this is a timeless truth. So long as the wicked are in power, the faithful, those who open their mouth and live publicly for Christ, can expect to be persecuted to one degree or another. And we are living in such a time where the wicked are the ones in power. So don't be surprised. And it may come from different places. Persecution may come from falsely professing Christians, just like the Jews claim to be the people of God. It may come from falsely pro professing Christians. I'm talking about progressive Christians. 
That's where may, maybe your persecution comes from there. Maybe it'll come from ordinary unbelievers. It may come from secular legal courts. It may come from your own family. But it will in one way or another come. And please, please hear me. What I'm, what I'm getting ready to say is, is, just hear me. No amount of winsomeness is going to change this. God help you and me if we think that by our winsomeness, we will avoid this. I used to think that. If I'm just super cool to all the unbelievers around me, and I try to be helpful, and I, like, I don't treat them badly, and I'm not very confrontational with them, and I just kind of like live and let live, and I try not to be like one of those judgmental Christians, right? I, that, that, that then maybe when the day comes, they won't hate me. That's a lie. That is a lie. No amount of tolerance of the wicked is going to change this. No amount of winsomeness is going to change this. No amount of kindness and good deeds for your unbelieving neighbor is going to change this. Once you finally make it clear that your allegiance is to Christ and you open your mouth to unapologetically declare him, you will be hated to one degree or another. Have we not witnessed this in our own day in our own town with Dr. Merriweather? I'm not saying this to, to, to stroke your ego or anything, but hear me. He is an academic man, a kind man, a respectful, a, a, a reasonable man. But when he made it clear that his devotion is to the Lord Jesus and not a godless world, what happened? Did it matter? Did it matter that he had been winsome and kind and reasonable and respectful? No! He was persecuted by his employer and the wider community in our entire nation. He is very winsome. More than I would have been, I promise. More than most of us would have been. He was reasonable and rational and kind, and it didn't matter. Why? Because the wicked hate God, and since they cannot get to him, they will get those who, who align themselves with him. They can't get to heaven to try to kill God, so they will get you. And no amount of winsomeness will change this. Brothers and sisters, do not be surprised. This is part of our heritage. We are from a long line of godly men and women who have suffered for Christ because they loved him. The second point of application. We are not to be moved away from our mission no matter what the cost. The disciples were not to be swayed from their mission when the persecution came and neither are we. We are to continue to preach the gospel. Please hear me. This isn't in my notes, so here we go. Don't sacrifice the preaching of the gospel for political machinations. I'm not saying not to be politically involved, but we as the church must remain laser-focused on preaching the gospel. That is what we are here for. I'm not saying not to no, preach the gospel to Caesar, but it will not be politics that save us. Again, we have no allies. There will have to be revival. There will have to be gospel preaching. People will have to be converted if any of this is to change. And even if they're not and the persecution comes, we are to continue to preach. Do not trust in, what, what is it? The psalm says, do not trust in princes. Do not trust in horses, that is war chariots, but trust in the Lord. Politics aren't going to save this country. I'm not saying not to be politically involved, but they're not. We must remain focused on preaching the gospel. And brothers and sisters, we will not bow when it comes to this. We will not stop preaching. We will not bow. We will not back down. We will not let up. We will not apologize for loving Christ. Come whatever may, we will not stop. We have been giving our marching orders from the Lord of hosts. We are soldiers in his army, and he has armed us with everything that we need to wage the good warfare, to fight the good fight of faith. And we will wage war on this earth by the preaching of the gospel and our godly living in the face of wickedness. Bear with me as we see some types here. We will go forth to conquer the world in the name of Christ by his gospel, just as the Israelites conquered the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. Why? Because we have a better Joshua. We have Jesus, and he will lead us until the nations bend the knee to him. We will wage war. And we will do so to the death. That's what soldiers do. We fight to the death. And by God's grace, we have been enlisted into this army. 
we will fight and we will die and we will do so gladly. Why? Because we love him who first loved us. That's why we're going to do it. Because we love him who first loved us. Because we are willing to give our lives for the one who gave his life in order to save us from our sins. Because he gave all for us, we will give all for him and we will do it gladly. The third piece of application here. We are to cherish the promise of Christ. The promise of salvation to the one who endures to the end. The promise is ours. But hear me, please hear me. This kind of endurance, I was talking to Stephen about this. This is not a chest-thumping endurance. You ever hear people preach like that? We're not going to bow because we're going to be so strong. Nonsense. We're weak. And we will give in if God does not help us. Hear me, I was talking to my sister about this at work on, on Wednesday. How will you withstand if they threaten to kill your children? Am I saying that I think that's going to happen in this country within our lifetime? I don't know, but I know it has happened to Christians in the past. Read of missionaries in the Middle East. We're going to kill your children in front of you if you don't renounce Christ. How are you going to continue to be faithful? I'll tell you one that's actually happened a few times already in our country. We're going to take your children if you don't affirm their gender identity. How are you going to be faithful to Christ then? Or we're going to kill your spouse or rape your spouse. Or we're going to torture you if you don't let Christ go. Brothers and sisters, we cannot do this on our own. We can't. We will not endure by our own strength. It must be God who does this in us. And so we must pray. When times are relatively peaceful, we must pray and ask God to prepare our hearts for the day and then pray that the day never comes. We must pray. And we must believe. We must believe his promises where Jesus tells us, I am the good shepherd and I don't lose sheep. What does that mean? That means that if the day comes, he must preserve my soul. We must believe the promises. We must believe the promises that he will hold us and keep us faithful. We will conquer. How? By faith. By faith. The whole Christian life is by faith. By prayer and by faith. It is God who will work faith and faithfulness in us. So we must look to him for grace to help in time of need. And as we pray and as we believe, please hear me, I've read some, some interviews with, with Chinese pastors who have been arrested. We must decide ahead of time that we won't bow. In faith, believing that God will help us on that day, we must decide now ahead of time, I'll get in trouble. I won't stop. That by faith in Christ, believing his authority, his victory, and his great love for us demonstrated in his death for us, we will not give in. Why? Because we believe he offers us something better because we believe that he himself is better, because by the powerful working of the Spirit, he has become glorious and beautiful in our sight, because he, the Spirit, has opened our eyes and our hearts to receive Christ with joy and gladness. Brothers and sisters, as we're going to sing here in a little while, fix your eyes upon Jesus and believe his glorious promises as you suffer for his name's sake and know that our God who is faithful to his covenant, has promised to save us, will strengthen us, and will enable us to withstand the trial and remain faithful to the Lord Jesus. So may God help us then to embrace our heritage, preach the gospel, and be faithful to the end. Amen. Let's pray. God, have mercy. Have mercy. We don't know. We don't know how bad it's going to get. We don't know if maybe you'll have mercy and grant revival. We don't know. But God, we ask that you would have mercy. That you would save sinners. That you would take the scriptures that we just read and considered and seal them to our hearts. And that you would prepare us should the day come to be faithful unto the end.
And God, until that day comes, help us to continue, and even through that day, continue to preach, to preach the gospel and to suffer whatever we must. Help us, God, to be your church and to believe your promises. Lord, Psalm 2 says that the nations belong to you right now and you've been enthroned. And so we ask that you would take dominion. Through the preaching of your word, take dominion until all the nations serve you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.